chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 47, and we will read down through verse 12, verse 11 of chapter 12. Uh, it's kind of a significant turning point. I've already shared that uh, outside of perhaps healing Malchus' ear there in the garden, uh, that the raising of Lazarus was one of the last signs that John records that Jesus did. Uh, his hour is approaching. The context of our passage tonight is he's now uh, within a couple of weeks of the cross. And so the hour is approaching that Jesus had come to accomplish. In fact, I may touch on it again, but in chapter uh, 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so we, all the events that we've been reading about have been unfolding. Uh, in fact, as I was thinking about this sort of concluding area here tonight, uh, I keep going back to the blind man being born blind and healed. And I'm, I really am convinced that what Jesus did in his life and the contrast of those who claim to have sight but their increasing blindness are on display as this last hour is unfolding or coming to pass or as we're approaching this last hour. And so I just want to kind of look tonight at the reactions and how, and how these things unfolded. Uh, certainly, if you'll turn with me really quickly to Acts uh, chapter 4. Early in the church's life, Peter, John, chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested for their preaching and and then the, obviously they were hauled before the authorities. They threatened them to be silent in regards to preaching in Jesus' name and, and they were ultimately released. And then in chapter 4, verse 27, it says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. To do, this is important, to do whatsoever, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So that's a critical verse in regards to the events that are unfolding as we've read them, as we read in the scriptures and in, in the gospel accounts, particularly as we get into Passion Week as well. So the events that are happening are, are unfolding according to God's predetermined plan, according to his purposes. Now, there are lots of people involved in fulfilling different roles in that, but they are, and they are responsible for their roles. Judas is responsible, the Pharisees are responsible. All those who are involved in making decisions in regards to Christ, they bear the weight of the responsibility of those choosing, but God is acting in providence, providentially, to bring about the very, uh, the very things that are taking place. If there's a hardened heart that is causing a decision to be made, then there is a God's, God's ordained or God's predetermined purpose not to soften that heart. Let that hard heart act as it will in that circumstance. So I'm just saying that to say that when we see these events unfolding, uh, to understand them in the way that Jesus understood those events as they were unfolding and to have the certainty of those events, we have to believe what Acts is saying here. That while we're watching these things unfold and while each of the individuals has a, specific, um, has a specific responsibility in the unfolding of those events, superintending all of that is a sovereign God who is indeed bringing to pass the thing which he has ordained from the foundation of the world for all eternity, as it were. So I just wanted to say that to give the context for all that we're seeing here. The hardness of the Pharisees' heart, the escalating uh, 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 viciousness toward, that they use towards Christ. All these things are unfolding, but there is a God who is sovereign, who is orchestrating or pre, predetermining the events that are unfolding to the end that Christ would ultimately be crucified. That's why I read the passage later in John where he says, what am I going to say? This hour has come. What am, what am I going to say now? Deliver me from this hour. This is the hour I came for. And so Jesus' certainty in regards to to his purposes caused him, I think, to be able to look upon the unfolding circumstances and understand that people were indeed responsible for what they were doing in regards to Jesus. But over superintending all of that was the Father's purposes being fulfilled in his life. That's the sovereign God. 
And that's the sovereignty of God on display here. So we're looking in verse, chapter 11 of John, uh, beginning in verse 47. And as I said, I'll read from into chapter 12 to verse 11. Uh, we ended in verse 46, but some of them, some believed upon the raising of Lazarus, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? But this man is performing many signs. Uh, I was reading one uh, literal translation of that was, this man is performing confirming signs. And the implication there would be that they were recognizing these signs as confirmation. We're in trouble. What are we doing here? He's performing these signs that are confirmation. And so they're really alarmed about this. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, and we'll, he'll weigh heavily into the narrative as it unfolds in the Passion Week or the last week of the life of Christ on earth. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, John's commentary in verse 51 tells us, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country, to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money in the box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Help us now as we look at this word. Lord, give us understanding. Uh, cause our minds to be sharp in regards to the, to the taking into account of the truth of Scripture. So help us this evening that we might behold your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I called the convention they called here. I, I couldn't help but uh, in my notes just to say the convention of killers. And so in response, in response to all that had unfolded, uh, even going back again to the healing of the man born blind and all the events that unfolded there. And you can almost feel the growing antagonism of the religious leaders uh, to Jesus Christ, to his claims. And it is really striking that they didn't at some point, and they even acknowledge in here, what are we doing? He's performing many confirming signs. If we let him go, everybody's going to believe in him. And it's just striking that they didn't just stop somewhere along the way and say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> he's performing confirming signs. Perhaps we might ought not to be getting in the way. Maybe at very best, we maybe ought to withdraw and just observe and see how these things unfold. But you don't see that. You see this growing hostility. Uh, I noticed as you track them through the narrative, uh, how this progresses. Uh, 
Now, if it begins first when he comes on the scene with skeptics, uh, they're just skeptical of him. Uh, people are saying that he did things. Sometimes they're denying the miracle. Sometimes when they can't do that, they're diverting attention from it. They bring things to bear like, well, he did this on the Sabbath? And they just divert attention from the real issues. But there, there's a, a beginning skepticism involved in, in the works and the words and the actions and the miracles and the signs Jesus was performing. Later, as it progresses, that skepticism turns to a more of a resistance. In other words, they're no longer suspicious of what he's doing. They're just outright resistant to it. This is a problem for us. In fact, I think one of the root issues with the religious leaders was that the more, the more prominent Jesus became in the community, the less prominent they were. And they, they felt threatened by the presence of Jesus and by the people's attention towards Jesus. So skepticism eventually turns into a resistance. Now they're, they're fighting, if not out of fear of the people because of John the Baptist's testimony and so forth, but they're, they're resisting in more subtle ways, but they're no longer just skeptics. They are resistant to the teachings of Jesus. From resistance, you can see it unfolding as it comes to rejection. We don't know who this man is. Follow God. Give glory to God, they said to the blind man. We don't know who this man is. And, then, and so now that resistance is getting more overt. It's getting more open. Now they're trying to convince the people that they ought not to be listened to. So resistance becomes rejection now. They're, they're rejecting him outright. His claims, everything. They're diverting attention from him. They do not want anyone going to Jesus and certainly not believing the words of Jesus and even, even not acknowledging with their, what they've seen with their own eyes in regards to the miracles. In fact, in some places, even accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so it's rejection. And then from rejection becomes, comes this defiance. In other words, now they're actively defying the things of Jesus. They're, they're plotting even behind the scenes. They're already beginning to think that this, this miracle worker and the teachings of this man, I think in t particularly later, the cleansing of the temple, there, there are things unfolding that are direct affronts to their authority and to their place. So now their rejection becomes defiance. Now, now he is an enemy to, become, to be silenced. We're in a desperate situation, they would think to themselves. We can't let him go on in this way because it's increasingly threatening to us. And then finally, defiance becomes outrage. How many times have we already spoken in this gospel that they took up stones to kill him? They had every intention then in some pseudo self-righteousness or pseudo uh, service to God to, to slay this one whom they would claim to be blaspheming. When he said, when Abraham, before Abraham was, I am, they took up stones to kill him. So resistance turned into rejection. Rejection became outrage and enraging. Uh, they were enraged in regards to Jesus. And finally, I think you see unfolding here that all this combined together to produce a resoluteness in them. They have now convened a council. And in the passage that we're going to look at, they conspire to kill him. Now we've, now we've gone from the religious elite in the community to a convention or a council of murderers. They are counseling together. And that was interesting to me. Notice as well this council that they form here in verse 37. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. So it is obviously perhaps uh, people from those two different uh, uh, institutions, as it were. There may have been some even added to that as well, but they gather together now. Now it's not just individually people suspicious, individually angry or outraged at the claims of Jesus. Now you have the added strength of numbers. They convene a council. Uh, you know what? One of the interesting things to me about defiance of, of the teachings of Christ is that often... <coughs> We find strength in numbers. We'll, we'll defy it, and then we go out and find someone else who's living in defiance of it. And by their defiance, they encourage our defiance, and we become even more defiant together. And here's what you essentially see. They're gathering now a council of those who are already predisposed, as it were, to rejecting Christ. But now they're going to gain in momentum by gathering them together. I've said sort of humorously, there were 
there were nuts in my day, and when I was a kid, there were nuts all over the place and around here and there. The difference in today's generation is the nuts can connect with one another across the globe or through the Internet. We didn't have that in my day, so the nuts were kind of isolated in their community. But, but in a sense, that's what you see happening here. They're all concerned. They all have their individual concerns. But now they're going to gather together and convene a council. And then they're going to double down or maybe even systematize their complaints against Jesus. Their, their skepticism has evolved now to outright murderous intent. They have convened a council, in fact, of killers in many ways. Notice as well that we're primarily made up, and this is sobering, of the elite, the religious elite. These are the chief priests, the priests and the Pharisees. These are the, these are the law, the lawyers, as it were, the, the intelle, intelle, intellectuals of Israel. These are the people who knew the Torah. These are people who, whose job it was to interpret the Torah, to, to conduct services, and the priests were there and, and to occupy themselves with the ministry that took place in the temple there. These are the people who ought most to have been open and sensitive to the claims of Jesus. But yet this, can, this council is made up of these people. There, I think there is a warning there uh, to the religious elite or those who begin to take pride in their religious pedigree, uh, I think there is a real warning to them because you, you endanger because of the position that you have, you endanger yourself to becoming deaf to the truth of Jesus Christ. In fact, it strikes me that those who ought to have been most open to the message were the most defiant of it. I mean, they really were. I mean, the ignorant would hear the message and the religious leaders, of course, would say to them, you're listening to him because you're ignorant. You ought to listen to us. We know the Torah. But yet you were hardened hearted. You were hardened to the, to the claims of Jesus, even though you knew the Torah. I mean, Jesus says of the, of the Pharisees, uh, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which speak of me. He's talking to people who knew the scriptures who did all they did was look through the scriptures awaiting the Messiah. And now the Messiah was in front of them, in front of them. And they first were skeptical. And now at this point in this last week or two of Jesus life have become a convention of killers. Notice, as I already mentioned, it was a council. And, and I just want to reiterate that it was a gathering. Uh, what I think that does, is it intensifies that. If I have a, a grievance and if it's just mine, it'll grow in intensity to a certain point. But if I can find somebody who shares that grievancy and they can tell me someone else who shares that grievancy and we can all get together with that grievance, you know what happens to the grievance? It grows more intense. In fact, we'll expand it. We'll, we'll, we'll add on some other things while we're all talking about it because I didn't think about that one. That's terrible too. Well, did you think about this? And the next thing you know, you've got a whole list of grievances and the grievance, uh, the, the motivations have intensified. The outrage is growing. That's the problem with the council here. There wasn't a council to convene, to evaluate the claims of Christ according to the scriptures and to see whether or not these things were true. It wasn't a council like that at all. It was a council, I think, designed in its motivation to establish and to preserve their place, not to evaluate the claims of Jesus. Notice as well in verses 47 through 48, you can sense here a growing urgency, I think driven by fear. Because he says to them when they convened this council, they were saying uh, apparently to one another, what are we doing? But this man is performing many signs. The implication there is that we ought to be doing something in regards to the signs he's performing. We either need to be denying them or preventing the people from hearing of them. We need to do something because these many confirming signs are happening. And, and now we find ourselves publicly rejecting the one who is performing these confirming signs. What are we doing? We need to act upon what's happening. Perhaps they had had discussions among themselves and perhaps they had had debates among themselves about the claims and they had all their disputes lined up. But he seems to be saying here, now it's come time to act upon these things. It is not enough for us to teach in the synagogues and in the temple. It is not enough for us to influence people in the marketplace and warn them about this Jesus. He is doing miraculous signs. What are we doing about that? 
The implication is it's time to do something. It's time to act upon our heart's desires in this particular instance. In verse 48, I think you see part of the fear there is their perceived or what they would perceive to be an unbearable loss. They say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, if we let this continue, this man performing these many signs, if we let this continue, all men will believe him. I was reading, when I was reading that passage, I thought it should have said period. That's exactly right. If you leave him alone and if you let him do the confirming works, the result of that will be that the glory of God will display and men will come to believe in him. Right. It's exactly what you ought to do. But they're not saying it in that way. They're saying it as though that is a threat to them. If we let him continue to do this, everybody's going to believe in him. I mean, that's amazing to me. Is that not your evangelistic zeal? I mean, I, I want to say that evangelistically. Let's, let's display and declare the mighty works of God so that when people see the display of his glory, everybody will believe in him. That's what the Christian says. But these were the religious leaders of Israel, and they're concerned that the many signs that he's performing will result in many coming to believe in him. Not only that, but he says, if they do that, and then the Romans, if we let him continue to do these things, the Romans, under whose occupation they were, they will come and they will take away, notice the words, take away, remove from me something, deprive me of something that I currently perceive myself to be in possession of. They will come and take away both our place. Some people believe they mean literally the temple there. And uh, our nation. And so that's the, that's the perceived loss that Jesus is threatening them with by his teaching and by his miracles. And they perceive that loss to be unbearable. We cannot bear such a loss as that. I think in, in part of their leadership as well in the temple, they take away their place, the temple, but that's where their livelihoods were conducted. In fact, it was their service in the temple and their religious occupation that provided for their wealth, as it were. And they, we know from accusations of Christ himself that they exploited that to the point to become profitable in those things. And they had even in some ways had worked out deals, as it were, with the Romans and tax collectors and so forth. And so there were all sorts of corruption involved in that. And what they're saying is if, if we let him keep doing this, we may lose that. We may lose the esteem of the people. Remember Jesus' condemnation of the of Pharisees and the religious leaders? He said they love to walk in the marketplaces and recite long prayers and they love the greetings and they take the high places when they come to a feast and all these things. They love these things. They feed upon these things. These things are feeding their egos and their pride and they love that. I think that's what they're threatened by here. If he goes on like this, and people begin to believe in him as the esteem for Christ rises, the esteem for us will be lessened. And if it's lessened, then we don't no longer have the greetings in the marketplaces and we no longer have the admiration of the people. And we built our entire identity upon being that to the, in the eyes of the people. Our occupation, they may even come and shut down the temple processes. Well, that is our occupation. That is, that is the central place for Israel. In fact, that is an identifying mark of the people of God. And this is where we find our occupation. We stand to lose everything if we let him go on like he's going. The threats to what they might lose if Jesus is seen to be exactly what Jesus is. Their place involved really their lives and their livelihood if it is indeed the temple. But their nation as well. The temple and the nation of Israel, it is that which distinguishes them, I think in some ways, as a source of pride apart from other people. They identified as this Israel, the people of God's favor, this favored status. In fact, that's interesting because the scriptures do say in places that God tells Israel themselves, I didn't choose you because you were more righteous than any other nation. I didn't choose you because of some quality in you. I loved you because I loved you. 
the root of my choosing you is in me, not in you. But yet his choosing them caused them in some ways to elevate themselves and find an identity in that that made them feel superior to others. And among those whom God has chosen, there are priests and there are those who know the scriptures and they are exalted as well. We stand to lose everything if this man keeps going this way. In fact, you can imagine how outraged they were when Jesus directly confronts them. In fact, he's already done that in the passages we've read before. And they said to Jesus, whenever he said, I'm for judgment, I am coming to this world that those who are blind may see and those who see may become blind. And they say later on, are you talking about us? I mean, they were angry about that. They knew that was a direct affront to them and how embarrassing that must have been to their inflated egos in regards to their own righteousness. And Jesus essentially says, it's because you think you see is the reason of, is the evidence of your blindness. And as I've already shared multiple times, I think there was almost a double blindness happening. And so they stood to lose a lot. Let me just insert here a point of application. The true words of Christ, the true ministry of Christ will threaten your place. It will threaten you. If you take him at face value and the claims of Christ at face value, they, they will threaten you to lose everything that you hold valuable in some ways in this life. They, it will call into threat. I was sharing with someone recently as I struggled to discern where God would have me to serve him, whether it was vocational ministry or in some other capacity. That was a long going process. I'm not like some who, who testified that they were running from God. I really wasn't. I, I, I genuinely just wanted to have a certainty that this is where God is leading me in my life. I'm prepared, Lord, and with all that I am to trust you in that capacity. I just need the certainty to know it is of you and not of me or of anyone else. And I remember lying in bed one night and I'd hit a snag. And I just couldn't get a piece about that. My inclinations were that the Lord was leading me uh, in, in more towards a vocational ministry, but I couldn't get any certainty. And I remember actually saying the words in my bed. I said, Lord, what am I lacking? What's lacking here? I'm just, I can't get any clarity. And the words of scripture came to my mind as clear as a bell. One thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and come follow me. Now, I've heard people say, well, you don't always mean that literally, and maybe that's the case, but let me tell you as a word of testimony, in my case, that's literal. Because the dilemma I had is I had just built a home and we'd lived in it two years, and my question was, how am I going to sell the home that I spent a year building and lived in two years and, and still go on and try to be educated as much as possible and equip myself to follow Christ in a vocational ministry? How can I do both of those things? And there were even folks who, who suggested, well, maybe, maybe even the church could pay your mortgage while you went to school and things like that. And I never was settled with that and at peace with that. And that night, the Lord communicated to me, I'm convinced that you can't do both, Larry. My, my calling cost something. And if you're not prepared to give up the house the earthly dwelling to follow me, then you're not devoted to following me. In fact, in exceeding that is if you're not willing to give up, yea, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. That's costly. And if Jesus comes to us and makes that declaration and claim in our presence tonight, and he looked out upon us and said, who of you would follow me? And we would all raise our hands and say, I will follow you, Jesus. And he says, then give up your own life. Are you willing to give up your own life to abandon any earthly concerns and fleshly pursuits and give yourself wholly over to me even unto dying for the name of Jesus Christ? Now who wants to be my disciple? It might be that the number of hands would not be as many as the first question. And that's just a point of application here because what Jesus was declaring and what Jesus represented was a direct affront and threat to the position that they enjoyed in their religious occupation. They had it made. 
I mean, these were the elite of society. They were held and respected by all. All the people would gather to them for words of wisdom and the community would provide for them through their offerings and tithes and so many other things. And these were well-positioned people. But when Jesus came along, he threatened to draw the attention from them and their place to himself. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Do you realize how offensive that is to them? They said it, 40 years in the making was this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And the writer tells us they didn't understand that he was speaking of the temple of his body. It's an affront and it always will be. In fact, part of, part of what I sense is happening in the prayer request I mentioned is that as that brother of mine brings the truth of God's word to those people who have sat under set under something other than that for so long. It is not only, at first it was disturbing to them. But then as he made the case biblically, I think what happens is they say, I can't argue against it biblically, but I don't like it. It, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And so since I can't refute it biblically, I will find some other reason to be upset with your presence here proclaiming that. And it begins to unfold that way. And then when you finally sometimes have a meeting, that's what you hear. Well, we don't like this, 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 and this. And they're not going to say what it is is we can't argue from the scriptures that you're wrong teaching wrongly, but we don't like what you're teaching, which is essentially to say, I don't like the Bible. So you need to leave. I, I'm convinced we're going to see that more and more in our generation. And they may, they may, because of some religious inclinations, justify it by making something about personalities or behaviors or methodologies or uh, administrative skills. They may make other excuses in regards to why we want you out of here. But at root, it is that we don't like the truth because the truth threatens to remove from us all the things that we have rested our security in all these years. And we don't easily like to give those things up. In fact, we'll hold on to them till death. And I think that's the threat from these religious leaders. Notice as well how God is working providentially in 49, verse 49. But one of them, one of these religious leaders, the high priest for that year, they rotated there. And apparently through that, through that vessel, God would often prophesy or by his spirit speak through that one who was holding the position of the high priest. And so Caiaphas had that position at this particular time. And it says to him, he speaks up in the midst of this, of this turmoil, and he says to them, you know nothing at all. You're missing it here. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And essentially, I think what he's saying there, unbeknownst to him, we know late, we'll learn later on what, what, what he was saying there by the providence of God. But I think what he meant there is it's better if we, if we silence him or if we turn him over to the Romans and let them crucify him, if we blame all the turmoil on this man as the rabble rouser and let him be killed and we all get to survive. Don't you know anything? We're not going to cause some great big disturbance. We'll just, we'll just undermine him, make our accusations, and turn him over to the Romans, let them kill him, and the Romans will think they have silenced the problems of Israel, and we'll all survive, and we'll be rid of the one that threatens all that we hold dear. Brilliant plan. Brilliant plan. Turn him over to the occupying forces. But what Caiaphas didn't understand is that the Spirit of God is superintending the unfolding of events. And he spoke more truth than he ever realized. In fact, John gives us a commentary in regards to that. Verse 51, he says, Caiaphas now did not say this on his own initiative. <laughs> but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Oh, how right he was. And oh, how blind they were to it. 
but in order that he might also, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I just love the phrasing of that. There are children of God scattered abroad. He's dying for them. He's going to gather them together, not only the nation of Israel, but those who are all scattered abroad, who are the children of God. Jesus is dying so that he can bring all those together. You want him dying so he can be silenced and you can gather all the people to yourselves. And so your Caiaphas' motivation here was not to declare to the people that Jesus was dying for the nation in the redemptive sense. His motivation was to convince them that it's better that one man would die and we all get to preserve our place. So his motivation is completely opposite of what the prophecy itself is saying. So God is superintending the selection of the words of Caiaphas to communicate the glorious realities that were about to unfold right there in Israel. Now, if I could just pause and say that's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. When I'm picking the words... I'm choosing mindful, intellectually selecting the words to accomplish the thing that I desire. And in doing so, there is a superintending hand of God that is bringing to mind the very selection of the words that I choose to mean something completely different than what I chose to mean by it. And what he declares by it is far greater than what I've declared by it. That's what you see happening here. So from that verse, verse 52, in verse 53, so then from that day on, they planned together. I'm assuming he means this council and all who had gathered there, the chief priests and the Pharisees and whoever was gathered in that group. From that day forward, having heard the prophecy of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, acknowledged that God speaks through Caiaphas. What Caiaphas says, we ought to take with great weight and great, great force. And so considering Caiaphas' prophecy here and his wise words as the high priest and considering what we've witnessed with our own eyes and the danger of all that we stand to lose as a nation and as a people, let's, let's from today forward, let's figure out how we can kill him. That's just plain. I mean, there's no subtlety in that whatsoever. They deliver, Can you imagine for a minute sitting down to plot out how to kill anybody. I mean, can you imagine gathering some, with some people that hated a neighbor down the road and over a period of time conspiring together to orchestrate some subtle means by which you can rob them of their lives? That's just anybody. Here you have the religious elite, those who, who were of Israel, those who, through whom God had worked wonders throughout the ages gathering together and conspiring and plotting how they might put to death the very son of God. That's how extraordinary this is. And I would suggest to you that that describes for me the depth of the blindness in these religious leaders. And it explains to me exactly what Jesus means for judgment. I am coming to this world that those who are blind, like the blind man born blind, that know they're blind. I've come in the world that these may see. But the, but the same words that bring sight to the blind have the opposite effect on those who claim they see. They become more blind and they become more blind and more blind and then become resentful and resistant and defiant. And ultimately they become a convention of murderers to take my life. That's what the truth does to, to fallen men in this world. And I have to testify to you, I can see that growing in intensity even in our generation today. There was a time when you could state biblical truths. I read a story about a police officer this week. Uh, I forget what state it was, but he, he, filed, he, he wrote one thing on his Instagram or something account, and he just simply said, uh, God created man in his own image. And he made a comment about homosexuality, and he said, well, I, I don't think that's right because in Ephesians 5, marriage was to be a, a portrait of Christ's union with his church. And so Christ not joining with Christ or the church not joining with the church, there were two distinct individuals, Christ and his church. And marriage universally was a portrayal of that union of two different things. 
Jesus and his church. And so he was making the point on his Instagram, that's the basis of why I reject homosexuality as a valid uh, relationship because it is a distortion. I don't believe it's marriage for that singular reason. Within two days, he was called into the headquarters. And they said to him, you can keep your job. Man, by the way, he wanted to be a police officer all his life. He said even when he was a little kid, he just wanted to be a police officer. They told him, you can either remove that post and not do that again, or, or you will be subject to losing your job. When he went home and prayed about that, and he came back, and he says, I, I can't do that. And they, they suspended him, and now I think it's in litigation as to whether or not he's even going to be able to keep his job. Why? This is my, this is my way of thinking sometimes. I would, he wasn't allowed to put his opinions anymore on Instagram, so I would have went in there and I would have just quoted Scripture all the time. All the time. I wouldn't say a word. I wouldn't comment on it. I'd just post a verse, post a verse, post a verse. And when they got upset and fired me, they'd have to admit that we're going to fire you because you put Scripture on your Instagram page. And then I'd be heading to the Supreme Court. <laughs> because you're going you're gonna to fire me for citing Scripture? I'm not giving a commentary. I'm not giving an interpretation. I'm just putting the truth on the Instagram page. And you are angered by that to the point that you would deprive me of an occupation to provide for my family because of it. That's the world we're living in. And I think the more clear the truth becomes, the more aggressive it will be resisted. And the more they will desire to do the exact same thing they did in Jesus' life. Jesus even said it. If they have, if they if they would kill the master, how much more will they malign the servants of the master? And so we ought not to think ourselves preserved from that. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. As a result of that, verse 34, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away. I think this is because his time had not yet come. It's coming. In fact, he's going he's gonna to submit to this. Later on, but it's not now, so he's not walking among them anymore. And he goes to a, from there to the country near the wilderness in a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves so the, in preparation for the Passover. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? That almost sounds like they were expecting that he would. We've been watching this man, and if anybody's going to come to the feast, he's coming to the feast. And so the debate now seems to be, what do you think, that he won't come at all? Is that what you think? I mean, I think he's going to come at some point. He may not be here now, but surely he's going to come. What do you think, that he won't come at all? And some might have been saying, oh, he better not come. They want to kill him. We're already getting word. That if anyone to see him, verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had already given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they was to report it. So they could seize him and carry out their plan to kill him. So we go from there into chapter 12. The narrative continues. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, the reason I wanted to read into chapter 12 is because I want you to see the contrast. The religious elite had convened the council, had conspired together, and have now taken positive actions towards seizing Christ and silencing him by putting him to death. They had gone from skepticism to a murderous horde now trying to snuff out the life and silence forever the proclamations and the declarations of the Christ. Now we have a contrast. Six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So there's, there's the contrast. Part of the contrast. You got this religious elite who ought to have received Christ with such affection, magnified because of their understanding of the glories of the Messiah, and they have evolved now into a murderous lot. And you have this, this young Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in one place, having just witnessed the resurrection of her brother or the bringing him back from the dead. And you have this, this one broken there before Christ and, and pouring out one of the most valuable things she probably had just to anoint his feet in that moment. 
I love it here that you find Lazarus, the one who had called back from the dead, reclining at the table with Jesus. Uh, that, that posture is one of intimacy. In fact, we feel weird. Have you ever tried to eat sitting down without a chair? We, we really bought into this whole Gentile thing of having chairs because I am not comfortable whatsoever leaning on the floor eating off of a low table. Give me a chair. I've got to get my elbows involved in this. But in that culture, that was intimacy. That was wonderful fellowship, leaning. In fact, we read of the Apostle John that he was leaning at the Lord's Supper into the breast of Christ. Intimacy, devotion, affections manifest in the communion of a meal. And here's Lazarus, dead not long ago, called back into life, habitating, as I said, that old fleshly body with all of its sorrows and all of its other things, reclining there with Jesus, having the supper and enjoying an intimacy and fellowship with Jesus. And you have Mary and you have Martha doing what Martha does best. She's serving here. Just to say a word, I think I said this Wednesday, but I like Martha. She's one of those, she's one of those kind of women that says, I love you, and I'm going to show you. So here comes the meal. Bring, bring the meal out. Get the dishes done. Let's move around. I, I love her heart. It's a, it's a love that manifests itself instinctively in action, in service. And I think that's why Jesus didn't harshly rebuke her, even when he called her out and corrected her understanding there and pointed to her sister Mary. And she said, you, you've done a good service here, Martha, but oh, Mary's chosen the good part. That's never going to be taken away from her. And here we find that Mary, in contrast to those religious leaders and what she's doing. She takes this uh, container of nard or spikenard. In fact, I, I was reading that 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 would have been, the, it's about 12 ounces. That's the equivalent of an entire year's wages just for that little 12 ounces of, of this spikenard or this, uh, this aromatic uh, spice. And that's valuable. That's a year's wages. That's like whatever you're going to make this year. That's like having a vial of liquid that costs whatever you make this year. And Jesus comes into your presence. And you come before the feet of Jesus and you crack that thing open. And you pour out a year's wages, labor, sweat, and blood on the feet of Jesus. And you use your hair to rub that into the feet and anoint his feet as a welcome guest in that home. That's the value demonstrative of the value she placed on Jesus. That's why I think Jesus told Martha she's, cho Martha, she's chosen the good part. That's not going to be taken away from her. And on the other side, you have a murderous council of religious leaders seeking how they might find him, seize him, and kill him, and silence him forever. So you see the contrast in between those two contrasts, we have an interjection here in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, John tells us here, the one who's been tending to betray him. The implication is the motivation's already there. In fact, other gospels uh, communicate a similar event, if not the same event, as that Judas went immediately out after this event and betrayed Jesus. Let me say about Judas, have you ever heard sermons that were sympathetic to Judas? Things like, well, I feel sorry for Judas because I, I think he believed in Jesus, but he, he just he wanted to push Jesus' hand, push him to manifest himself as the Messiah. Well, John ain't buying that. John tells us exactly why. He says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, when he saw this extravagant expression of Mary's love and devotion for Christ, he said, why was this not sold? That's a year's wages. That's 100 denarii, 300 denarii that might have been used to minister to poor all over this community. And all God's people said, amen, brother. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? I know myself. I know my instinct would be the same way because I feel like that. Well, doing something extravagant as opposed to distributing that and changing the lives of people around me. That's the true expression of love and devotion to Christ. And Judas played on it. This, why in the world has this been wasted, as it were, upon Jesus when we could have done so much good with this? And the undiscerning followers, perhaps, or those in the gathering area might have even in that moment entertained thoughts. Judas got a point here. 
That's a lot of money. A lot of people could have been helped by this. John gives us his commentary of it. Now, he said this, not because he cared about the poor. He didn't give a rip about the poor. But because he was a thief. That doesn't sound very sympathetic to the motivations of Judas in his betrayal of Christ. He's a thief. In fact, how the thief came into possession of the money box is a mystery to me. Certainly the providence of God is at work here. But somehow or another, he was assigned as the treasurer of the group. The thief who carried the money box. And John tells us, and he used to pilfer what was in it. He was skimming off the top. No wonder, he said, that could have been sold for 300 denarii and we could have put it in the money box. Where I'm getting my living, by the way. That's what John's evaluation of Judas is. So you have these religious leaders who are desired and committed, resolved to silence Christ through murder. You have Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and perhaps whoever else was gathered here at this dinner enjoying an intimacy and a love for Christ. And Mary expresses the depth of that love by pouring all that she has of great value upon the feet of Christ and anointing him. And in the midst of that, you have Judas in the middle. I don't think Judas gave a rip one way or the other. He wasn't worried about a Messiah coming. He wasn't worried about the Jewish nation or the poor people. He was worried about his own prophet in that moment moment it's all he cared about and so you have this third contrast as well and Jesus responds to all of this in verse 7 therefore Jesus says in regards to his comment in regards to Mary's actions I love this leave her alone I, I wondered when I read this what the force of Jesus speaking here was I I have to th- I have to, I'm inclined to think it was forceful, as if as soon as it was said, there was no delay. Jesus heard it, turned immediately and responded and said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. You don't have a clue what she's just done. And I'm not sure that Mary even understand the fullness of it, but she would someday because what Jesus perceived that as, as a pre-anointing for the death he was about to endure. So leave her alone. That's powerful to me. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor Judas. Judas, there are manifold opportunities from this day and forward for you to pour out your life to provide for the poor. Abandon all of your property, Judas, and give all that you have to feed the poor You have the rest of your life and the rest of every generation's life to minister to the poor. They'll always be with you and there as a a vessel for you to express the love of Jesus. But what you don't always have with you, Judas, is me at this hour in this world. And And Mary has recognized that. And she has commemorated it by pouring out the thing of most value to her upon my feet and making me welcome. Remember Jesus' rebuke of one other similar circumstance as this when he says to the religious leaders, I came into your house and you didn't give me any water. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't wash my feet. You did nothing for me. But this woman in that instance Some believe it might have been the same instance. But this woman in that particular instance has done all these things. So Jesus says, leave her alone. You have the poor with you always. You're going to have opportunities tomorrow to minister to the poor all around you in the rest of your days. But I'm only here for tonight because in seven days I'm going to die upon the cross. And I'm not going to be in this world in the condition, in this position anymore. I'm going to return someday. I'm going to come back. You're going to see me resurrected. But I'm not going to be in this place again. This is a singular event in all of eternity. And God has ordained that this tender-hearted Mary has come to before the feet of Christ and poured out an expression of her affection and love and devotion. And in doing so, she has, she has indicated or, pour, or pointed towards the dying of Jesus, which is the salvation of the world. So leave her alone. Leave her alone. Let me just insert here. Be careful in judging the devotions of Christ's followers. Because what you may think is a, is a shallow, maybe, 
or an extravagant expression of their love for Christ, you better be careful how you wade into the judgment of God's people in whose heart he has stirred a love and devotion for him that would produce such an expression. So just, just a warning and a caution. Verse 9, he goes on to say, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So now this religious council has got some real problems. You've been plotting to murder Christ to silence him, to save your place in this world and to protect and preserve your station in life. But, but you got something else to deal with because now they're coming and gathering, not just for Jesus, but they want to see the one who was once dead and in the grave four days and is now alive, leaning at the table with Jesus. Lazarus has got a testimony of the power, as I shared this morning, and the resurrection power of the voice of Jesus Christ. He's got a testimony. And so what do these religious leaders and religious elite decide to do about that? Verse 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And that was their exact compla complaint about the ministry of Jesus. If we don't do something, they're all going to believe him. So we, we've already got our plan. We're going to do something to him. We're waiting for our moment. Judas is going to be key in that moment. So we've got a plan sort of in motion how to silence Jesus. But now they want to talk to Lazarus who can testify of the power of Jesus and even the identity of Jesus in this instance. So we've got to do something with him too. Well, since we're in the killing business, let's just kill him too. You see how the hardness of heart escalates and the progression of that, it becomes harder and harder and more vile and more defiant against good, against the righteous and against the glory of God. They were concerned in verse 11 because many were coming and were believing in him by the testimony of Lazarus. So we got to shut him up too. Let me say by extension, the church has the same testimony. If you're here tonight and you're born again, you have the same testimony as Lazarus. You were dead in your trespasses, dead and gone. And the power of the voice of Christ calling you out of that death was itself the initiating and the, the originating power that produced life in you and this new life in Christ. So you've got the same testimony. Sooner or later, the world's going to get around to silencing you because you are testifying to the glory of the Lord who saved you. And that's the one they really hate. And so sooner or later, it's going to come around to you. In fact, I would suggest the reason it hadn't been here more intense in this nation, in some ways, partly because of the grace of God, but partly because we have systematically stopped testifying about it. We're not offensive to anyone. Some churches don't threaten at all the status and the wealth and the, and the pursuit of the flesh of, of, of people claiming to be Christians. In fact, they encourage it. In fact, you ought to have it. You're a child of the king. You're a princess. You're a prince. What princess or prince shouldn't have all these things? Have Adam and give the Lord the praise and the glory. That's the teaching this world teaches them. And so they're encouraging the amassing of things. And if they do that, they're not going to get any persecution. The world's going to say, amen, I like that Jesus. That doesn't change anybody. But that is not the testimony of the voice that Lazarus heard from the grave. And I'm going to tell you right now tonight with all my heart, that's not the testimony and the voice I heard. The voice I heard was, come follow me. Come follow me. Abandon those worldly pursuits and all that you treasure in this world and give your life over to me. And all of my Christian life and all of yours has been the pursuit of doing that more fully every day. And it is serious, deadly serious business. And every day, if you're sensitive to it, there will be something in your life that the Lord is pointing out to you that you must lay aside for the pursuit of him every day. And some days I ignore it, some days I suppress it, some days I don't want to deal with it, and I hang on to it. But the Lord never ceases to keep pointing things out in my life that I'm holding and treasuring more than Him, or in a comparable way to Him, or that are hindering me from treasuring Him with all that I am. Not a single day goes by that He doesn't point at something. Sometimes it's just a little flash, it comes into my mind and my heart, there's a piercing of conviction, and I get busy doing something else. I know, I will offset the thing, hold on to it, offset it by doing more of this thing. Stupid. That's how, that's how silly and childish we can be when it comes to preserving our sinful comforts in this world. 
Jesus makes huge demands of every one of us in this room tonight for being a Christian. Now, it's true that we don't have the strength in and of ourselves and in our own flesh to, to answer those demands and live up to those demands. But what those demands ultimately call for us is to die to ourselves and live in the fullness of our union with Christ. And through the power of Christ and the truth and the Holy Spirit, let these things be manifested in our lives. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. That's demanding. That's demanding. And his call for it requires you and I to lose something of our comforts and our pleasures and our pet sins in this world. And unfortunately, sometimes we Christians are hard-headed about letting those things go. After all, they're not as bad as some other things. And so we grade those according to their severity.